is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. I've been looking forward to speaking with Matt Stabil, the founder and editor-in-chief of TheExpeditioner.com, for quite a while now. That's mainly because of his irreverent take on travel. After all, life on the road is supposed to be fun, and Matt tells it like it is, both on his blog and in his book, The Expeditioner's Guide to the World. I hope you enjoy our conversation at Hustling International in New York as much as I did, and that it inspires you to get out there and find your own voice in travel. You have a ton of followers. I know you have posted videos that have over 600,000 views. You're the founder and editor-in-chief of TheExpeditioner.com, which is one of the top 50 travel blogs in the U.S., I feel like you're very inspiring for a lot of people that want to be a travel blogger, get out there and make it happen for them. So I would love to just start off with how you caught the travel bug and then how you transferred that into creating this wonderful site, theexpeditioner.com. Cool. Thanks for having me on. I love doing interviews in areas where it's basically a storeroom. This is very nice. Uh, We've got like beers next to us here. I don't know, know what that means. Yeah, Yeah, it's going to get to crazy later. It's going to be one of those interviews. (laughs) Most of those views on YouTube are my mom, so I'd like to give her a shout out. But no, it's going really well. Actually, the YouTube channel, we're about to hit a million views now, actually. So those are little dated numbers. So it's doing very well. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, and I've been working a lot on that. But to get to your original question, so like I said, I run the site called The Expeditioner. It's about four years old. Mm-hmm. So right now, currently, I'm a full-time attorney. And the site was kind of a product of this kind of existential crisis I was having towards the end of law school. It was mm-hmm. between my second and third year, and I was thinking to myself, well, all right, I'm going to graduate as a lawyer. Is this what I want to do full-time? Yeah. It was a big question. And so I started thinking to myself, well... What do I really want to do? You know, like, you know, that the classic question, you know, if you could do anything in the world, what would you want to do? Right. And at that point in my life, I was 25, 26. I hadn't had time to travel much. I'd been in school for a good six years at that juncture. Yeah. And I started thinking to myself, well, I think I'm a pretty good writer and I really love to travel. I'd love to combine those two things. But the problem was, again, this is 2005, 2006, you know, it wasn't a, the greatest time to break into print travel writing yeah so i started thinking to myself well you know i don't really know any online travel companies or travel sites or blogs you know back then there weren't that many so i was like well forget it i'll just i should just start my own become my own editor whether i'm good or bad i know it's going to get published that way and i can write what i want i can kind of be a little more creative if i want to i can publish people whose writings i like that's not catered to a specific demographic Mm -hmm. i can publish it based upon what i like so that was the impetus of it. I started the site after I moved here to New York, built it up from the ground up on my own. Then shortly thereafter, I started doing video as well. And this was mm-hmm. something I always just wanted to get into, but I thought it was a good way to kind of supplement the site as well. I mean, I initially did it as kind of, all right, it'd be great to have some brand recognition through the videos. Mm-hmm. And it kind of grew up into its own beast, though, because of the fact that now there's a lot of travel writers and bloggers, but not as many video makers, although that's changing a lot right now. So I think it, it helped me kind of be separated a bit from a lot of other people in the travel blogging world, which was great. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as far as the travel bug, though, I never really had anything that I, it's always been there. You know, I love traveling. It's just maybe a fact that I just didn't have the time, you know, or the resources to do it before. And 
I decided I'm going to do something that allows me to do that once I got out of school, and that was it. So, hmm. you know, again, having a full-time job, it's it's difficult, but I've been fortunate to have a good amount of vacation days comparatively to a lot of other people, especially in the U.S., and I've traveled, I don't even know, probably, you know, like 30-some-odd countries in the last few years. Oh, wow. So it's great. Yeah, and some of those have been because of the blog. Some of them have been, or most of them are independent. But either way, it's always an excuse to travel. Right. And it also allows me to travel in the way that I want. You know, there's very few times that I'm actually relaxing on my trips. There's always, especially with doing video, you're always kind of doing something with it. Mm -hmm. And I think any travel writer can understand that. Yeah. And in the end, I think it's actually allowed me to enjoy the trips even more. It's, it's made me and compelled me to meet certain people or to do things that maybe I wouldn't have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's been great. So let's say that somebody has no background experience in journalism whatsoever. So they're a typical travel blogger. You got it. (laughs) No, I didn't really say that. Just joking. No offense to travel bloggers. They're all great. So what is your advice for them? They, They want to get out there on the road. They've got their laptop. What do you suggest? What's the first step? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm by no means the best writer out there, but I think, you know, the number one key in anything you do, I think, is pure imitation mm-hmm. and stealing. You know, read as much as, <laughs> as you can. the lawyer tells me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Under copyright laws. Read as much as you can. I mean, there are some really fantastic writers out there that are both with a journalism background and without a journalism background. Yeah. Read as much as you can of their work and imitate it. That's kind of the basis of like journalism school. They're all kind of imitating a certain style. That's the best advice. I also feel like, you know, never feel like you can't do it. Everyone's gonna improve. I mean, whether you're doing podcasting or video making or writing, you know, it's always gonna be pretty bad at first and you improve down the road. You know, that's the nature of things. And, you know, I think that the goal is to never stop learning. So even if you're not a very good writer, get out there, do it, try to imitate the styles of people that you like and you think are good and and keep going at it and always learn even with a, like a legal background you know i still sat down when i was done and read like the mla style book and you know yeah. several other ones and i'm constantly going on weird google sites like grammargirl.com and figuring out I proper love yeah Girl. she's great yeah <laughs> i would totally date her she won't return my calls maybe she will now <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's now out <laughs> is she an ardent listener we'll see right we'll see <laughs> so I think it's, it's a matter of also just always learning and I think there are some great resources out there you know in the travel writing world everyone always cites Don George he's got a yeah. book that's that I think he published through Lonely at Planet, Lonely Planet. Mm-hmm. yeah and it's kind of like the bible for most people yeah so I think that's a great resource to start off yeah, I agree with you on that. And then there's classes on, like Annalisa Sorensen's Media Bistro Travel Writing Course. That's great as well. Like you're saying, there's resources out there. Yeah, you know? of course. So just yeah. jump in because you did that. I jumped into it with my podcast. Yeah, you know? so I do have a journalism background, but that didn't teach me how to do podcasting. You know, so you just jump into it, you learn. It sounds horrible at first, and then you just <laughs> tweak it to try to make it better. So. Yeah, sure. I think you have to have a little bit of no shame. You know, you right. have to. Well, I mean, I guess you can always delete your old stuff, but you know, I think you just have to be comfortable with the sense that you yeah. know people are going to maybe read some bad stuff of yours early on, but that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, that happens. You know, yeah. that's kind of like George Lucas tried to redo Star Wars. You know, like thirty years later, like no one likes their earlier works. Yeah. But it's a matter of don't let that deter you. Otherwise, you'll never start and you'll never begin. That's it. That's exactly right. So, what were some of your first travels abroad? Were you pretty young? Yeah, actually, well, I'm, I'm kind of in a unique situation. I've, you know, my family always traveled, but my mother's actually afraid to fly, so that somewhat that limits a bit. <laughs> you know, limited our travels. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Colorado, so as much as I like the state, it's a landlocked state in the middle of the U.S. Yeah. And if you're not flying, it really limits the amount of places you can see. Right. So I think that always kind of 
motivated me to want to get out and see the world and mm -hmm. to explore a bit. We saw some great stuff in that region, you know, <laughs> but it's usually limited by car, which, by the way, is also a great way to see the world and to travel. But again, it's, it's limiting. So that's why it really motivated me to want to do something where I could travel the world and see much more of it. In fact, I very rarely do domestic travel anymore because I've huh. been so focused on international travel. But I did a kind of a classic Western Europe backpacking trip after college, right before law school, mm -hmm. which was a good time. But, you know, looking back on it, it's not the way I would travel now. I mean, I think I eked out 11 countries in yeah. 22 days or yeah. something. One of the, right. Yeah, one of those trips. I didn't even have a backpack. I think I broke on the way to Heathrow on the flight over, and I bought, like, a bag that had, like, a wheel with me. Yeah, it wasn't the That's best not... way to travel. Yeah. <laughs> and I told my girlfriend to carry it. She wouldn't do it. It was oh, really man. terrible. Did you get yeah. rid of her? Yeah, I mean, so we broke up, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we're not together anymore, but it's not the, that's not the reason why. But that was, you know, one of my first big international trips. Yeah. You know, the big one is I started, you know, once I had my first vacation after working, I started in Argentina and Chile, and that was 2007. Mm -hmm. So I did my first videos and my first blog entries from there, and it was just great, magical experience. You know, it mm -hmm. kind of, I think it was a little bit of so much anticipation building up to that time period. It was just a great time. I mean, I love going to South America basically now. So it's oh. the height of the spring down yeah. there. And, yeah. you know, remember Buenos Aires, the jacaranda trees were blooming. Yeah. And everyone's really happy, as anybody is when it's springtime. Yeah. It's just an ideal time to travel. And it, it just worked really well. And it was the first time I was able to start working on the blog while I'm traveling mm -hmm. and to do video. So I was just really excited to do all those things. And I just really had a, an amazing, amazing experience. It's also the first time that I was really kind of doing the solo backpacking thing. So yeah. staying at hostels, meeting, you know, other individual travelers who are doing the same thing. So I met a lot of people. It was also different that year versus a few years back. You know, it was the first time I was able to integrate social media into my travels. So I remember right. going on couch surfing and everywhere I went, I kind of lined up locals who I asked, let's have a beer or coffee and yeah. maybe you can show me around. I mean, I think it's changing the way we travel in a very good way, but it was the first time that I was able to do that. So I met a lot of locals everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. And I think that was great. It's been great ever since, but that's always yeah. been an amazing trip for me. Yeah, absolutely. I did a semester abroad in Buenos Aires and I was actually crying <laughs> when I was leaving. And I had all these plans to buy an apartment in San Telmo and do tango, definitely. <laughs> like, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but it's still on that bucket list. But yeah, Argentina. There's a soft spot in my heart for Argentina. Yeah, I think there's been like one person I've talked to that didn't have a good time there. Really? Yeah. That oh, come on. That's like, yeah. There's always going to be outliers, yeah. Yeah. I've since it? defriended her. No. <laughs> so let's talk about your wonderful book called The Expeditioner's Guide to the World, Intrepid Tales of Awesomeness from the Open Road. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, was... Intrepid Tales <laughs> of Awesomeness. <laughs> it's intrepidly awesome. Yeah, yes, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you write in there that our goal was simple and purposely broad to produce a creative, offbeat, edgy group of travel pieces that stands out from the run-of-the-mill travel anthology. No offense to the run-of-the-mill travel anthology publishers. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I think you did well. Tell me some of the stories that jump out at you. Yeah. Well, Christine, thanks for being the, the one person that bought that book this year. I appreciate that. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the, the book was an outgrowth of an idea for the Expeditioner. I run the site, but I have several people who contribute in different ways and frequency. And two of those a couple of years ago at the time were my good friend Luke Armstrong and another friend John Wick mm-hmm. out of Montana. And it was really Luke's idea was to say, hey, why don't we put together a book? Let's figure out how to do it and print it, you know. Mm-hmm. And we just took it from there. The book itself is an anthology in the sense of we put an open call out to the entire world saying if you want to be in a book that we're going to put together send us your manuscripts and we'll consider them and it was a very collaborative effort john and luke and i would read each story and rate it on a scale of one to three and then once we were done we added up all the numbers Mm -hmm. and then culled out the bottom whatever two-thirds and then took that top third and then kind of re-rated it from there and figured out because we wanted to have like an even distribution as to the types of stories we had And I think it turned out really well. We were able to kind of separate the book into different types of travels. Mm -hmm. We did a chapter called Love on the Road, and we did a chapter on travel in kind of war-torn areas. So we kind of Mm -hmm. mixed it up quite a bit. One of our motivations was to try to write a different type of book. It wasn't just going to be the best travel American writing, 2000, whatever the book came out, 11. Those are fantastic anthologies, but... A lot of times are the similar types of articles, are the types of articles you read when you open up GQ or The New Yorker or, you and know. the same writers. And same yeah. types of writers, yeah. yeah. You know, for better or for worse, you know, we try to take some maybe unpolished people, you know, mm-hmm. we clean it up a bit, but try to take it to the next level and yeah. try to kind of have a very unique travel experience through uh-huh. reading the book. We did a thing called Backpacker Bingo in the back, so if you go to it <laughs> and kind of check off those things that you see on the road, like... You see an ex-Israeli military <laughs> member, you get to check it off, you know, and somebody with a you know, Maple Leaf Canada flag right. on their backpack, you check that off. So we try to make it kind of a fun, irreverent book as well. The goal was always to create a yearly anthology. Of course, this was back in 2011. It was just so much effort and all of us have so many things that we're doing that it made it difficult to continue on. Hopefully we'll maybe get a volume two out one day, you know, we'll see. But part of the motivation too was that all of us write online and and it is a Mm -hmm. different experience to be able to see your works and others in writing yeah and i think we all enjoy that the writers that we met who were able to actually give the physical book to were like so grateful for it and they just love seeing their name and their writing in a print format i mean as much as people say it's a dying format i do it many other people do still love to read and print and people still love to see their names in print and it, it is a different experience seeing your article in a magazine or a book versus a blog, you know, whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but it's, it's true. So it was a really fun experience. Keep your eyes peeled. Volume two, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) The next Clinton administration, maybe. (laughs) Right, right. Well, I do love that you put some of the more unpolished writers in there, as well as the famous travel writers, you know, David Farley and some of those writers. I, I love that you're giving everybody a chance because there are some wonderful gems out there that they just haven't had their shot yet at getting published and you allowed them to do that. Sure. And it's, it's actually, I mean, it's, that was really an outgrowth of the ethos of the expedition as well mm-hmm. is that I, I say straight up in the submissions, you know, mm-hmm. I don't care who you are, email me your article, I'll consider it. And I do. I spend hours a week, you know, reading through submissions. I get some really good stuff and I get some really bad stuff. But, you yeah. know, I... My viewpoint on it is that there's probably 99% of the great writers have never been published before. You know, they're out there. So I want to 
not close myself off from that. You know, it shouldn't just be people I know or, or knew somebody else. So they were able to be yeah. published elsewhere. And I think that was the idea behind the book too. So we did get some great submissions there. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we had more famous authors submit, maybe they'd be in the book, but you know, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I mean, I, you know, and, and, you know, and also going on the same topic though, I think it's still great in the sense that if you're just starting out or if you're maybe not as good, you know, just having that challenge, like, all right, I'm going to try to get in a book or yeah. get on a site, no matter what it is. Yeah. That's what you got to do. It's practice, you know, put it out there. Maybe it's not good. and doesn't get accepted, but you're learning every time you write that article or yeah. you submit it and even about the process or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So maybe this one doesn't get picked up, but 10 from now will, and then right. you get that book proposal and that's right. And then you retire. So you never know. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what story are you telling me? <laughs> but you do say, I quote, it's just for people that want to submit in the future, submissions, including monetary bribes and coconuts will be given special consideration. So there you go. <laughs> yes. So tell me, how do you leave London $150 richer than when you came? Also, on behalf of, uh, that was actually my friend Luke's story that Uh wrote that. We should call him up. But he wrote a story about how he was working in Guatemala at the time. That's actually where he was working from when we started the book. He was a volunteer down there, or running a charity, I should say. He had an opportunity to go to London. I think he was on his way there and realized that cigarettes are really cheap in Central America. So he picked up a couple (laughs) of cases. And then he shows up in London and realizes he can resell these cigarettes for quite a markup. So he actually basically funded his trip selling illegal products there overseas. There again, the lawyer tells us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was not me. I'm putting that on record. <laughs> okay. right now, that was Luke, yeah. But in the book I wrote about my time, caught malaria when I was in Mozambique. So that was, my story was maybe a little more serious. It was kind of one of those situations, one of the more extreme situations I've been in my life. So I just thought it'd be a good opportunity to kind of memorialize that in writing yeah. before I get too old and forget all the details. <laughs> and there's plenty of people that get malaria, so it's not like it's the craziest yeah. thing that's ever happened. But you know, in my own sheltered life, it was a pretty big incident. So I decided to write about that. You know, I went through the process of what it was like to discover you have malaria in the middle of Mozambique without any access to western style hotels and access to get home anytime soon and the process of figuring out how I'm going to cure myself and you know hoping I get better and what happens if I don't and it's also the experience of having a disease that is I think it's the number two killer of people in sub-Saharan Africa you know next to HIV AIDS and it's something people are dealing with every day and We kind of take it for granted in North America that people just don't die of that. And this is something that people deal with all the time down there. So it's also my experience empathizing and understanding what it's like to go through that. Mm. You know, I was able to fly home a week later. So if something didn't go right, you know, I'd have access to a nice hospital or higher medicine. And a lot of people there, most people there don't have that opportunity. So, you know, it's, it's a, it provides a stark contrast of some of the benefits you have living somewhere with access to good health care and clean water and medicine, et cetera. So. That we take for granted. That we take for granted every day, that's right, yeah. And also, in a sense, it's a, it's, it's a unique travel experience that kind of highlights what it's like to live in that certain area, you know? I mean, there's great times of that trip, too, and I got to see what it's like to live there and enjoy the beaches like they do and, yeah. you know, enjoy the community feel they have and living in amazingly beautiful areas such as Mozambique. And I also got to experience some of the downfalls of living mm-hmm. in that part of Mozambique. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the the very holistic experience of what it's like to travel and stay there. Oh. 
So when I was living in Kenya, I thought that I had malaria. My host almost took me to the hospital, but it turns out I just had a really crazy, crazy bout of food poisoning. If your experience was anything like my wicked, crazy bout of food poisoning, which doesn't sound like it's that bad. Like we get food poisoning all the time. And no, let me tell you again, wicked, wicked, crazy bout of food poisoning. It was just horrible. What were your experiences? It's not great. It's kind of like having a heightened flu, mm-hmm. probably the closest analogy you can have. I was fortunate in the sense that at the hostel I was staying at, there were people there that I'd known for a couple of days and they kind of helped me out, like get into oh, a real yeah. hotel and kind of make sure I wasn't just like laying in some cot somewhere. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's like having a really bad flu, but thankfully if there's medicine available and you take it, it treats it very quickly and yeah. re- alleviates the pain. The hospital I went to was kind of like walking into an open air market in the sense, you know, and you wait in line huh. behind a couple dozen people before you see the doctor. and. And this is all in Portuguese, you know, yeah. which I don't speak. So, you know, he pricked my finger, tested my blood, kind of figured out that he said I had malaria, and he pointed to some window in the hallway, and I figured out that that was the pharmacy, and I went there. I handed them some piece of paper, and they handed me some drugs back and tried to explain what it was. After I figured it out, it turns out it was medicine by Novartis, I think. Mm-hmm. They just donate free medicine for mm-hmm. malaria as part of their efforts. It's a great thing they do. You know, but at that time they had exhausted all their malaria medication for adults. So I was handed like baby dosages. Instead of take one, I had to take like four of them at a time. And and it's just like the packaging just had like a picture of like a crying baby and then like a mosquito with like a line through it. You know, like it was like like pictogram format, like not the best way to take medication for like a life threatening (laughs) disease. But I was able to kind of figure it out. And you know, I just kind of went back to the hotel and recuperated for a couple days. Had some awesome hallucinogenic dreams that night. I remember. I was that ask you if you had the stress of it, or maybe it was the fever. I think maybe it just induces uh-huh. that a bit. Yeah. I remember one time I like woke up in the middle of the night and I was like looking up at the like awesomest starscape ever, and then I realized I was like in my bed looking at the ceiling. You know, like, uh-huh. so it was just like an odd, <laughs> odd thing. Makes it sound better than it was. It kinda, but, yeah, uh, I'm like, ooh, yeah, I like that. I should get malaria too. The only probably good part of it, but huh. there's just a lot of resting, and after a bit, about a day, you start feeling much better. You know, it's wow. not, not as bad. Were you on anti-malaria? Yeah, I was on. I was on medication at that time too, and has only a certain amount of effectiveness to right, it. Right. You know, huh. like there's different strains out there. I mean, it's, it's you know it's something you know everyone's got to deal with if, if they're in that area. You know. Well, those little buggers are adapting. Those mosquitoes. Sure. That's yeah, right. They're evolving. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that that scares me. They're too smart. Yeah. <laughs> We're insect repellent. That's why that's my number one. No, forget the malaria medication. Right. Just for a lot of like Crazy insect meat. repellent. Yeah, and you yeah. should be okay. I think yeah. that's like the number one recommendation I'd have for people. Yeah. All right. So I have a question for you. There's a quote in the book: "When in Rome, do as the Romans. When in Mexico, don't buy the shower dance." What? Is, what is the shower dance? Oh God! Do I want to know this? Yeah, I. Uh, I think I have to read the book. I don't. I don't even want to like try to dance around that story. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, read the book for that one. Yeah, that's funny. Well, I really do love the book because you cover some topics. Even we mentioned David Farley earlier. His was how to write a bad travel story. Yeah. And so you also have top thirteen ways to get kicked out of a hostel. You you mentioned the travel romances and the malaria, and you know there's parasites and the most dangerous places on earth and all of that. And it was a really fun book. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was the other thing we are trying to do was almost try to take the blog online magazine yeah. format and put it into a book. So we did have 
top 10 articles and we had kind of infographics and mm -hmm. quotes and stuff so it's not just reading you know a lot of text there's a lot of take a breath read a top 10 article yeah. or you know how to hook up in a hostel or whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> those types of articles yeah again someone else's article right. yeah yeah <laughs> but that was kind of our idea was to try to like make it as if you're reading you know a blog or something yeah but in print format yeah well i hope that a second one comes out all right we'll work on that. all right I'll see, maybe you could co-editor, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take on that responsibility. <laughs> Are you ready for the Traveler's 10 questions? Oh, sure. All right. What travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane, besides yours? Oh, uh, no good answer. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a big fan of Hemingway. I think he's one of the best travel writers oh, yeah. out there. People kind of look at him as a staid literary figure, but I think he's actually probably the preeminent travel writer of the 20th yeah. century. So Papa Hemingway. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, anything I read of his makes me want to jump on a plane, but probably The Sun Also Rises, probably one of my, you know, top five books ever that I enjoy, and that always makes me want to go to the Basque region. Mm -hmm. Of course, things don't really work out well for the characters in the book during that trip, but, you know, maybe minus the heartache and the right. uh, yeah, drunken fights or whatnot, but, but still, it's just a fantastic piece of travel writing, you know, if you look at it, you know, through that lens. Nice. What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? Well, <laughs> I suppose this is odd to follow up after the malaria story, but, you right. know, I've got to say, though, I, I think Africa is just an amazing, amazing place. My prediction is, I mean, I think there are a lot of people who are traveling Africa right now, mm -hmm. but if you ask the typical American or North American or European, you know, most haven't been there, but it's yeah. just a fantastic, amazing place to travel. I think it's starting to get on people's radar, maybe the same way Latin America was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, I think now, you know, you, you look around and you read stories and you talk to people, people are going to Central America, they're going to South America, and I think they weren't doing that nearly as much maybe 10 years ago. And yeah. I think Africa's gonna kind of be like that a few years from now. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. it's a little different in the sense of time to get there from North America or Europe. It takes longer. But still, it's just, it can be very inexpensive, but mm -hmm. the people are great. The sites are amazing. It's yeah. beautiful countries all around wherever you travel. It's a unique travel experience. Mm -hmm. You throw on top of that all the natural sites and the animals that you can see there that you wouldn't see in any other part of the world. And yeah. it's just a fantastic place. Yeah, you're going to run into some issues you may not in other countries as far as health concerns. But the things that shouldn't prevent you from traveling there at all. And, you know, mentioning Mozambique, like that region and the beaches, I still haven't been to a better beach huh. and like coastline than that part of Africa. Oh, I mean, nice. not that I've traveled to a ton of beaches in the world, but I've seen quite a few and uh, it's still one of the greatest places. And I think one of the reasons it's like that is just because it's so undeveloped. I mean, it's like five huts off the beach and that's it, you know? So you have this amazing, amazing giant bay seascape that no one is there, you know? I mean, huh. what else can you ask for? Yeah. You know? Where else in the world are you gonna find that? You know, there's very, very few places, especially mm. nowadays. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I feel the same way about Africa. I was in Sierra Leone and Kenya, and I need to get back and see a lot more. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Western Africa too. I think it's a oh, yeah, yeah, whole yeah. other Fantastic. animal, but yeah, uh, yeah it'd be it's great. Good. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? I went to Angor Wat a few years ago, and mm -hmm. You know, like, well, I mean, just on the tangent, you know, I was just in India in April and I kind of did the eastern part of the country and I was close to the Taj Mahal, but I didn't go to Agra. I was kind of like near it. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, I, I had a limited time period, you know, like two and a half weeks. I was like, you know, I'll see the Taj Mahal some other time. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, everyone goes there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I didn't miss that much. And I know people that went there, I mean, it's a great experience, I'm sure. 
There's a reason it's so popular. It's, I'm sure it's an amazing structure. But, you know, I felt like I still saw India without seeing that. But going to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, it can be a little bit on that tourist trail or backpacker trail. And I think mm-hmm. Siem Reap is really getting built up. But forget it. It's, it's all worth it. When you get to Angkor Wat and you get to explore the entire structure and walk around and explore it and learn the history, it's still the epitome of travel. You know, everything about that, the sights, the experience, the differentness of what it's like to be there. It's just so different than anything you've seen before. Yeah. Just an amazing, amazing experience. So I, I think- I absolutely agree. Yeah. I mean, and going back to the Taj Mahal, people are like elbowing each other, <laughs> you know, inside, to, like at the tomb and whatnot. It's like, okay, that kind of detracts a bit, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, I'm glad I saw it, but I agree with you, Angkor Wat, there's not that elbowing for, you know, that picture of that vine coming through mm-hmm. those bricks. It's nice. Yeah. It's really nice. And even the parts where you do have to do that, like I think everyone, you know, lines up at sunset in the front, you know, that classic picture of the pools with the complex yeah. in the background. You know, okay, maybe for about five minutes you have to like elbow some people right. for that picture. But in the end, it's all give or take. Mm-hmm. Compare the two and it's, it's totally worth it. Yeah, I agree. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? Mm. Well... I feel like I've had a lot of good meals, but I'll just, <laughs> I know it sounds a little cheesy, but I'll just put in reference to a recent trip I did, which was in Maui in September. And I had a recommendation to go to this fish taco restaurant, which is like in a shopping mall. It's kind of a <laughs> chain. I think they actually like have outlets in like Arizona now. So if anyone's in Arizona. What is it called? Oh, so it's called Coconuts. Oh, Coconuts. Yeah. Oh, you no, probably I, know. So, I was going to say, is it Wahoo's? See, I'm a San um, Diego girl. I'm oh, like, yeah, you know. tacos like crazy. I don't know, like, <laughs> I just not like, you know, I don't get good fish tacos in Manhattan and Brooklyn yeah. or in Colorado, <laughs> you know. So maybe it's just because it's so different for me. But like, I love to come in and say like, oh, I got invited to like a village in right. Northern Laos and a woman cooked a meal there. And I mean, you know, I'm sure it's a great meal, but I swear to God, those are like the, I could eat those fish tacos for like the rest of my life. I don't know what it is about it. It was like. I think it was Mahi Mahi and Ono Tuna. Yeah, it was just so, so good. And it was like kind of like a chain, you know, you like go up yeah. to a counter and stuff. It was just like a great, great meal. So, you know, forget, I'm not going to be pretentious about it. You know, some of your best meals can be at some place a lot of people go to. So, it could uh, even be mom's food, you know? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Maybe not. Uh, she may listen to this. Yes, it's my mom's oh. meals. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road and how could other travelers avoid it? Yeah, I mean... Malaria wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's that would probably be it. But, you know, I think any time you're in a new place, you're kind of tired, you don't know where you're going, you don't speak the language, the city looks a little sketchy. I mm-hmm. mean, that's probably happened to me like 15 different times. And it's always a nerve-wracking experience. I don't care how big you are, how much money you have on you, you know, how much you've traveled. It's always weird to like get on the city bus and be dropped off in the middle of some sketchy looking city downtown and to pull out your lonely planet that has like three streets that are named there and just try to find your hostel. Right. It's always a scary experience, somewhat discomforting. But in that sense, it never ended up being that I was like bloody on the side of the road beat up or I never like had to sleep under a tree. You know, it always works out. I think in the end, people just have to keep in mind what's the worst that could happen. You know, like, oh, the worst that can happen is you have to spend some extra money and find a taxi to take you directly where you're going or or you get lost and, you know, you're an hour late to some hostel. That's not the end of the world. And you know what? That's part of travel. It's getting lost, being Mm -hmm. taken out of your comfort zone. In the end, you actually will probably feel really great about that experience because you kind of overcame the certain challenge, which I think is important. So I think that happens to me every time I'm in a new place, but that's fine. You know, just get past it. It's not that bad. And in the end, you'll you'll feel great about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no way to avoid it. Sure. Take it in stride. Take it in stride. Exactly. Yeah. What passport stamp still eludes you? 
Yeah, I mean... A lot. Yeah, forget it. Where do I begin? I'm sure everyone says that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I've got a friend in Australia. I've got to get down there at some point. I'd really like to see. Yeah, other parts of Africa. I really want to see Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by Northern Africa as well, so I'd love to get to Tunisia and, you know, Morocco. And, yeah, I really want to see St. Petersburg and Berlin. There's some big cities I need to get to as well. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I, I kind of see this as just the beginning. Yeah. A lot of places to go still. What's your most cherished souvenir and why? When I travel, I always kind of buy little knickknacks along the way. I'm not too big on buying big, big gifts or souvenirs. But, you know, one thing I do do is I take a lot of pictures yeah. for obvious reasons. And I take a lot of video for obvious reasons like for the site and the videos I make. And I think that's like my most cherished possession when I get back from a trip. I mean, I can't imagine anything worse than... My hard drive failing and me losing all those photos or all that video footage. You know, if I lose some little physical object that someone had handed me, it's not the end of the world. I don't think I would lose much sleep on it. So Mm -hmm. it's those two things that I really kind of cherish. That would devastate me far worse than anything else. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree. Because they kind of represent the entire trip. I think they bring back more memories and they kind of bring me back to that trip way more than any specific item would. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And what's the most interesting customer tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Yeah, geez, that's a hard one. I don't know. What do people say for that? I don't know. Drinking tea, <laughs> taking off shoes at the door. Yeah, I took off my pants before I came in here. I don't know if that was weird. Well, no. I don't know. That's like totally cool. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't really have a good one. You know, I guess I, I'll try not to be too cheesy about it, but you know, one thing I do notice is. It's kind of a thing you notice whenever you travel around the world is that people just like talk a lot. You know, they, they, there's no qualms. I mean, maybe other some other countries, but very few, where you wouldn't just start talking to the person next to you on the right. bus. Or, you know, people stand on the street corner and talk to strangers. And, you know, I'm probably way more talkative to strangers and people than I don't know than I would if I haven't traveled. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. that somewhat universal custom in most of the world. I mean, I think I notice that more in developing countries for some reason. Yeah. I think yeah. maybe because there's more of a sense of community. That's right. Yeah. Y- you know, in those countries. So I think you pick that up the more you travel in developing countries than you would in, say, in the developed world. Mm-hmm. So I think, if anything, I've kind of brought that custom into myself and act out on it. Mm-hmm. So but I think that's I think that's a good thing, though. Has that worked out for you here in New York? Yeah, it's great. I talk to people all the time, you know. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, you know, it's odd, but I think it's great. So many opportunities come out yeah. of that. You make good friends. And yeah. I could probably be better at that here, but no, it's fine. I mean, I think people have this veneer that New Yorkers are all tough and mean people. and It's really not true. No. I think I mean, maybe on the subway they are. But, you know, otherwise, you know, everyone's pretty cool. I just a subway friend the other day, though. Oh, really? Like two days ago. I told her she had a nice bag. <laughs> and now we've got emails of each other. So. See, if I did that, they would call the police. You know, it's different. <laughs> or she would move to the next car. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? Yeah, I think it's pretty straightforward. Just go out and do it. And I think a lot of other bloggers talk about this is that people make a lot of excuses as to why they don't travel and just get rid of those excuses. If it's a money thing, just travel cheaper. And if it's a money thing, stop spending money on new clothes for three months and save up for a Mm -hmm. flight. You know, it's not that expensive. When you get there, stay in hostels, eat street food. You know, the experiences you're going to have are not the ones where you're spending a lot of money. It's you being there and experiencing that country, meeting the people and trying 
the new food and, and exploring the culture. And I think that's the number one advice I have and make time for it. You know, like, okay, if that means you don't have vacation days to go to the beach with your friends nearby, then so be it. You know, yeah. save up those vacation days to travel around. I think the biggest part is don't make excuses. I think girls will say, oh, I, I can't travel because I can't line it up with my friends to travel. Right. And, you know, it's, believe me, I meet, I'm a solo male traveler, but I meet tons of solo male and female travelers on the road. They're doing fine. Things don't happen to them. That's They're not right. automatically targets for violence. I mean, you know, maybe there are things they have to be a little more careful on, but, you know, in the end, every single one of them is having a great time. They meet people on the road. They travel safely. It's not a good excuse, you know, to say That's like, right. you know, you can't do it because no one else wants to do it with you or you don't have enough money or something. Right, right, right. those They're all just bad excuses. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You just have to weigh what's important to you. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Make it happen. Yeah, that's right. So just do it. Yeah, yeah just do it. I've heard most, that before. Yeah, where? <laughs> where have I heard that? <laughs> What's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? Going back to being able to speak to strangers, I think one thing you do quickly realize if you haven't already is that people are inherently good. You know, people aren't out there to take advantage of you, to harm you, or to hurt you anyway. You know, I think you very quickly realize that people have a sense of wanting to take care of you, to be nice, to show you around, to befriend you, and it's kind of a universal trait. I mean, some people say that humans have this tendency to like get into tribes and fight each other, but you know, I think we actually have a bigger tendency to kind of take care of each other, to look out for others, and it's a natural feeling. So I think it's something you notice around the world, universally, you know, wherever you are, and that's great. You know, that's, that's one of the things I love about travel. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to start working on those coconuts cool. to submit with my... I say uh, compliments about my beard as well, so, you know, if you just want to, like, start, oh, right, start tweeting those out. It's pretty great, actually. Yeah. You live in Brooklyn, though. A lot yeah. of conditioner. That's yeah. That's trick. <laughs> People don't realize that. All right, well, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again when the second book comes out. For sure. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. If you'd like a shot at getting published on either the Expeditioner website or in the next installment of Matt's book, Make sure to reach out to him at matt.stabil at theexpeditioner.com or you can also view his submission guidelines on theexpeditioner.com. So good luck, and until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.